Hello, and welcome to The Stakes, the soothing cup of tea for your aggravated, scratchy throat that you may or may not have gotten from yelling at whatever news item of the week made you personally angry. I'm Julianne Ross, filling in for Holly Anderson. Today on the show, we dive into two major protests happening at the moment. MTV news writer Doreen St. Felix gets an insider's view of the prison strikes taking place across the country. And MTV news writer Marcus Ellsworth talks to Candy Mossett of the Indigenous Environmental Network about the pipelines in North Dakota that could destroy sacred Native American sites and contaminate local water sources. But first, MTV News senior national correspondent Jamil Smith talks to Simone Sanders, former press secretary for Bernie Sanders, no relation, about her voter mobilization efforts targeted at black millennials. We Vote is not your grandma's political movement. Their goal is to engage 50,000 African-American millennials through voter registration, and they'll be doing it by throwing parties, teaming up with rappers, and even hitting your local barbershop. Simone, tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. I mean, it seems like, you know, you came to prominence as, you know, press secretary for Bernie Sanders, and now you are really still trying to work, not for a specific candidate, but for the voters themselves. Can you tell me exactly what you're doing? Definitely, so um, post-campaign, I don't work for anybody, and I think that freedom is important because I can focus on the issues and I can say things that other people can't say uh, and do things that other people can't do because of whoever they work for. So what myself and Stephen Green from the NAACP and Tamika Mallory, who is the former executive director of NAN um, and is now doing her own consulting thing, we came together and said there are no real like hard-hitting mobilizing and get out the vote efforts for black millennials and so instead of waiting for someone else to organize us we just decided to organize ourselves and that's how hashtag we vote came about um, but it's not as I like to say not your uh, grandmama's mobilization <laughs> so we're not at the churches um, some people are because but we're not there and you know we're not necessarily gonna do a lot on college campuses but we are gonna be at the barbershops and the beauty shops you know we will be throwing day party voter registration day parties and happy hours um, where maybe, you know, maybe your favorite rapper comes through. You know, we might be on YG's F Trump tour and pop up there and <laughs> do some voter registration efforts. If you're only going to the campuses, you miss those, like I, as I like to say, everyday people. You know, people like my brother, who is a voter, who is going to vote, and he's not on a college campus. He's 31 years old and, and works a, a, a blue collar job every day. So where do you engage him? Do you feel like, you know, the energy, obviously, that, that Senator Sanders created during the primaries amongst young voters, how do you feel like that is transferring either to Secretary Clinton or to Gary Johnson, to Donald Trump, to whomever? How do you feel like that is carrying over? You know, I don't see I don't see the same level of enthusiasm as we saw for Senator Sanders, I would say for any other candidate, specifically among the younger demographic. There's definitely uh, tons of excitement for Secretary Clinton, especially from women. Uh, as you can see, her candidacy is a historic candidacy. She's the first woman to nab the nomination of a major political party. But I don't see that necessarily among younger voters, because a lot of younger voters you talk to, especially young women, you know, think that you know, in their lifetime, we'll see a, a, a female president. They don't think that this is do or die for them. You know, we don't, we think that mm. we'll get it again. So Really? They think it's going to be that, that easy, huh? <laughs> I have talked a lot. Look, I have talked to people that are like, mm, I'm leaning towards Hillary Clinton, but I'm just not going to vote for her because she's a woman because we'll see another female president. And I was like, says who? And they're like, uh, I just, it's just something. <laughs> yes, yes. So 
so there are lots of younger voters. And I also think that that's, while that's kind of scary to me, that's also what I think is so amazing and exciting because there's all this, there's this hope and there's this thought that we live in such a progressive, if you will, uh, political climate that, you know, the things that we're currently seeing, i.e. A, a woman capturing the nomination of a major political party is something we can definitely see again. You know, a black president is something we can see again. So I think that there is a little, there is some, you know, not, it's a little naive on some, some lenses, but it's also inspiring to me uh, because there are young people out there like myself that believe that we'll see some of these things again. But I don't see the same level of enthusiasm, but I also think that that's okay because I think Barack Obama spoiled us. Yeah, and I wanted to, that's actually what I wanted to ask you about is that, you know, do you feel like people got a different model of what engagement with a candidate is supposed to look like? with the 2008 Obama campaign. Oh my because goodness, I, know that, yes. I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't a journalist then. I get it. Um, I mean, everybody was just all in and there's hope and change and ready to go. But now I see this electorate as being more focused on policy, more focused on the nitty gritty of politics. Can you address how people are reacting to candidates that really they've been trained to fall in love with? Yeah. So <laughs> people love President Obama. And I think this is reinforced by his higher, unusually high approval ratings for a two term president. You know, we had President Obama who had you screaming hope and change, throwing your hands up at the rallies, making you feel like you were at church. You were like, yes, I feel it. What can I do? We're getting this man elected. In this election, and I would say also in the primary season, you know, you had Bernie Sanders, who is an old, let's be, he's an older white man from Vermont. You know, Bernie Sanders wasn't making anybody jump up and say, hallelujah, oh my goodness, I just love, I just love who Bernie is, but they really loved what Bernie Sanders was talking about. And I think that's what folks miss about why he, he had such a, such a, such a surge and such an amazing campaign. And now we're in the general election when you've got two candidates whose likability um, ratings in the polls aren't, aren't, aren't very high. They're not very favorable, but we have a candidate that is more than qualified on the democratic side to be president. Um, and we've got somebody on the Republican side that's, you know, real iffy, in my opinion. And I think folks forgot. <laughs> yes, yes, we're just going to, I'm trying to keep it PC, real iffy. CC uh, Donald Trump. And I think right. people forgot that being that elections and being a president is not about necessarily it'd be great if the president made us feel feel good and if we got butterflies in our stomach every time we heard he or she speak and we just felt inspired but a president is about who can govern best the president is about when you get that phone call in the middle of the night and you have to make the hard decisions who do you want sitting in that seat to make that decision you know who can make decisions for all people and not leave segments of the population out it's about governing you know it's, it's great if you've got some of that other stuff, but it's really about governing. And I think we're seeing that in this election. So if anybody wants to go and make the argument for either Secretary Clinton or Donald Trump on the on the enthusiasm or the inspirational tip, I don't think that's where you're going to get it. This election, in my opinion, has to be about the issues because that's what's going to bring young people out. That's what's right. going to bring Latino voters out, African-American voters. And part of my understanding is at least my theory on this. And you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, is that Frankly, every day in the news cycle, you're seeing everything but the issues. And young people are seeing this, this election play out the way it has. And they're thinking, well, A, they're not really speaking to my interests. And B, they're not talking about the issues that, that, that matter to me and my community. So what do you feel like is the news media's role in getting voters engaged? 
You know, I'm a, I, I, I must say, I have been a little disappointed in the general election. In the primary election, we got to spar in the press, if you will, about the issues with the Clinton campaign. So I pop up on television and I'm talking about, you know, Bernie's education plan and why we think it's, it, it, it was better or why we're better on this point about the TPP, um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, so on and so forth. And the Clinton campaign would pop back up and they'd say, no, we've got this policy. Now we're having real conversations about if Donald Trump is a racist. You know, what's the real definition of a bigot? Like, and these aren't even debatable topics, in my opinion. So I think it is the responsibility on part of the media to report the issues, but it's also the responsibility on the American public to pay attention to the issues. Because, you know, when the email thing is only so big because we all continue to blow it up, there are still real issues at hand. We still have to talk about how people are gonna put food on their table and feed their families, how we're gonna put more money in people's pockets. But that's what I think the debates are gonna be for. And I really think that we're gonna get the meat and potatoes in the debates. And uh, I know a lot, every news outlet is gonna be streaming it on their websites, but also on their televisions. And that's where I'm hoping we get some more of this policy conversation. One last thing I want to ask you, and that is about the stereotypes surrounding young voters. Young voters always are dismissed or forgotten about or or blamed when, you know, particular outcomes happen because, quote unquote, they didn't show up enough. They didn't come out to vote. You can never really count on them to actually follow through. Can you tell me what kind of obstacles you are facing in launching this effort with regards to simply the stigma around young voters? You know, I sat in a meeting uh, yesterday, actually, and uh, I had a couple meetings yesterday, and the folks in this meeting shall not be named, but it was a senior, it was a senior member of Congress, and this member sat in the meeting, and when it got to the part to talk about millennials, the member was like, and you know, these millennials, they think they know, and they don't want to come out and vote, and they don't understand, and they, and he was talking at the (laughs) young people, and I'm sitting across the table like, does he see me sitting here? So when it came to my turn, I was like, you know, young people, we want to vote. We want to be engaged. We want to be involved. And we actually care about the issues. Every major movement that has happened, that is happening, that has gone on for these last, you know, four or five years has been a young people led movement. Black Lives Matter is a young people led movement. The climate movement currently is young people. LGBTQ was young people. So we're engaged and involved. Y'all got to talk to us. Simone Sanders, former press secretary for Bernie Sanders and leading the hashtag we vote campaign. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Always great to talk to you. Likewise. Likewise. That was MTV News senior national correspondent Jamil Smith talking to Bernie Sanders, former press secretary, Simone Sanders. A national prison strike is going on, but it hasn't gotten much media attention. If anything, you might have heard of prison riots in Columbia Correctional in Lake City, Florida, which ended on Monday with a prison-wide lockdown. But as we'll hear from staff writer Doreen St. Felix, prison protests are a long game. On September 9, 1971, incarcerated people at the correctional facility in Attica, New York, took control of the prison from the guards. They presented a number of grievances, including restrictions on labor conditions and overcrowding. The uprising, which ended with a violent police intervention, became known as the bloodiest prison conflict since the Civil War. 
Attica is a complicated icon in American history. In activist spaces, the uprising works as a symbol of inspiration and of solidarity. This year, the Free Alabama Movement, FAM, and the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, IWOC, announced the beginning of a nationally coordinated prison work stoppage on Attica's 45th anniversary. The strike is a culmination of actions that have been taking place at facilities across the country this year, including Texas, the Carolinas, and Florida. This is a call to the end of slavery, the announcement reads. Now, this is how the 13th Amendment reads. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. As we record this, a week after the strike began, incarcerated people from 24 states have joined. We talked to an ethics professor who's helping organize on the outside, a formerly incarcerated construction worker, and two people currently in prison to find out more. First, a man who asked us to call him Comrade D. Uh, I like to just be identified as D. I am um, actually one of the prisoners that is actually partaking in the national um, strike that was called on September the 9th in the um, Carolinas area. He's got a cell phone somehow and was passed our phone number by the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. So he called us from a South Carolina area code. And we could fact check that, yes, someone by the full name he gave us is in prison. And the details of his incarceration matched up, too. I'm the founding director of Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. Jailhouse lawyers are lay advisors. They don't have a JD, but their ability to help other incarcerated people with legal problems has been recognized by the Supreme Court. And so how long have you been in this facility? I've been in, I've been in the prison system here in the Carolinas for a little over two decades. Oh, and how much longer will you be there? Um, a little less than a decade. When we asked him what the strike's demands are, he said to abolish the exemption clause in the 13th Amendment. Yeah, as far as, the, um, as, far as our demands, um, nationally, the biggest, uh, nationally, the principle that we are all agreeing on that needs to be addressed is the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution um, uh, to abolish the exception clause, if not the entire amendment. Um, this is something that we all agree on nationally. There's no wavering on this. Tell us what the exception to the 13th Amendment is. Uh, yes, deception is that deception is that it uh, has legalized slavery inside this country. Um, um, pre eighteen sixty five, before the amendment actually came into effect, um, you know the slaves they had the slaves in the country, which was particularly the New Africans. They was um, enslaved in the country. They came out with this amendment in eighteen sixty five, which we view as a compromise between the North and the South. Uh, and, it, and what it did was it effectively. Um, abolish slavery from the private plantation owners, and actually the government itself and the state monopolized it themselves. Um, and the exception clauses that there will be no slavery in this country unless or except if you accept for a punishment or a crime. And now can you tell me about the other demands for the strike? Uh, being paid for our label. We're saying that if private companies want to come back here and explore our label, then they definitely need to be paying us a fair wage. Um, we're asking for fair wages back here. We're asking for our general labor. We're asking also that we be 
um, compensated for. You have certain states that are giving prisoners absolutely nothing, like the state of South Carolina. They receive absolutely no pay for any general labor. Private industries, you may make cents on a dollar, you know, um, but once every two weeks, um, you may be you may be bringing back a check for eight to thirteen dollars once every two weeks. Um, and this is for some pretty heavy labor in the mm-hmm. prison systems. Um, medical concerns, uh, we 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 definitely um, say we get in bottom of the barrel medical treatment, and this is all around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and medical neglect, you know, we just had a big lawsuit that was filed by uh, Abu Jamal dealing with the hepatitis C. We checked, and Mumia Abu Jamal, the famous prisoner, did file a lawsuit. And according to the CDC, one in three people in prison have chronic hepatitis C. And they could possibly be cured, or at least they can stand off, you know, the, um, the deteriorating factors for hepatitis C. But yet they won't treat them with it because they say the medicine is actually too expensive. Now, can you speak to how um, specifically with regards to um, the wages, how they've affected you during the years that you've been at this facility? Um, I was one of the ones that was um, definitely being exploited directly uh, for my label. Um, I probably was bringing, I think we may have been bringing a check back. I was, uh, we may have been bringing a check back for probably, I think it was probably like 17 or $18 every two weeks. Um, when they bring you back here, a lot of us we come from poverty backgrounds. Um, mm-hmm. We come from families with very little resources. So we come back here with nothing. And then we get back here, we don't have nothing. And then we're told, okay, you can somewhat eat a little bit of what you may like to eat if you can afford our canteen prices. Now, for those of us that may not have that support on the outside, um, we can't afford that. So a lot of people are resulting to... Um, to, to ways or means to obtain these little small penitentiary or prison goods through, um, through means that are downright savage, you know, and, and, and it constantly keeps a volatile environment back here for prisoners. It's constantly, you know, but we all labor. We all work back here. So if we was getting paid for our labor, this itself would calm down our environment, our mm-hmm. prison environment as a whole. Um, and this is something we see as big because we're saying, listen, you know, once again, if you want us to work, pay us. And not only will you pay us, but you will also calm down the prison environment and make it safer for the prisoners mm-hmm. and the correctional officers. So we are about to approach a week into the strike. Can you tell us what the strike actually looks like on the ground in this facility? Uh, first of all, we note that the prison officials did not respond the way I think many people thought they may have responded. They didn't lock down it entire units. They allowed the um, prisoners to function with very little support from the prisoners. Um, and I think this was mostly for show to kind of give the appearance that, you know, that uh, that it was not going to affect the routines or the operations of the prison. Um, what we did see, though, in here, we did see a lot of prisoners, uh, such as myself, that was um, deadlocked. Uh, some of us was transferred to other facilities. Some of us was placed on lockup. Um, and the rest was kind of just allowed just to go about their business. This was during a time when the officers just, right now the officers just not bothering anybody about working. Um, and I think it's to keep from uh, agitating the situation. How did you personally come to these politics? What was your process of becoming um, the kind of political person that you are? I did a number of years on solitary confinement back in the early 90s or mid-90s. Um, and throughout those years, I was um, I did a lot of jump reading initially because you know you're in these solitary cells for 23 hours a day. I did a lot of jump reading, and um, and finally one day I received a uh, 
a um, admissive or a letter from another brother comrade that was living next door to me. And he was like, man, come on, man, you got to get up off the Western books and understand what these tombs are doing to you. You know, you're, you're already buried, but you're burying yourself mentally as well. And he slid me a book, and it was about Comrade George Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first book it was was with Soledad Brothers. Soledad Brother is a collection of letters by Black Panther George Jackson. He attempted an armed escape from the San Quentin prison in August of 1971, and he was killed two weeks before the Attica uprising. And I read that book, and I was just completely floored. I had to read it again. I read it approximately three times within a week. Um, after reading that book right there, it was just, it was on from there. You know, I uh, I began to study. I began to uh I began to order legal books. I began to study the law because the brother next to, to me, he was a jailhouse lawyer as well. And I began to study the law, um, learning uh, what we was up against, um, sharpening my tools. Uh, and um, when I was finally released from the um, solitary confinement unit and placed in the population, um, I began to gravitate around other brothers or comrades that was thinking the way I was thinking. And um, it was during this time period that we formed what is known in the Carolinas areas, the jailhouse lawyers speak. Uh, I want to ask how you're feeling right now. In all honesty, definitely a bit tense. We've had a lot of uh, eyeballing from the um, so-called correctional officers, um, a lot of shakedown, um, a lot of harassment. Um, don't know which way it's going to go. Uh, we don't know when the spot if when the spotlight leaves the prison system, how the prison system is actually going to really um, act. We understand now they're acting very kind of uh, shaky a little bit because there's too much coverage, uh, too many people's watching at this particular moment. So, um, so definitely we're kind of waiting on that. We're waiting on the tides to kind of the, the storm to kind of calm a little bit. So I'm definitely a little tense, um, but I'm also ready for whatever. Um, because I do believe in what we're doing, and I do understand that there are those of us that have to make sacrifices for the majority. Sometimes you have to make this sacrifice for the majority, even those that are not with us, even those that don't even understand what we're doing right now. So um, definitely a little tense, but we're going to make it. After talking to Comrade D, we got in touch with Azura Crispino. She's the media co-chair of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, she told us a little bit about the logistics of organizing a strike. So Free Alabama Movement had been asking for a nationwide work stoppage on and off since 2014, and that's really when IWOC was formed. And then prisons in Texas went on strike in April, and after that happened, there was a call for the strike to go national on September 9th. I would say sometime in late spring, early summer. So that may seem like a lot of time until you realize all of the factors that go into organizing across the razor wire and just how difficult it can be to get mail in, to get the word in. So, for example, we've had reports from prisoners since the ninth who have gotten in touch with us and said, we just found out that the strike was occurring we would have participated or we would still like to participate. Mm -hmm. We just didn't know because in certain states, male censorship was such that we couldn't get word in at all. Colorado, for example, every single piece of mail that was sent in bounced back. Um, Are you able to communicate with incarcerated workers during the strike in particular? 
we are still waiting to hear reports back. So, for example, I have not gotten any letters from Texas inmates at all. And Texas Department of Criminal Justice is claiming that there has been no strike action in the entirety of the state of Texas. So I just don't happen to think that's true. But it's probably going to be another week before we even get any letters Mm -hmm. from Texas inmates. So when you... um talk about wages in particular, you talk about slavery. So that's not being hyperbolic, right? You are saying, and many of these demands are putting forth that the wages that incarcerated workers receive are tantamount to slavery. Right. I mean, when you see pictures of a white male prison guard on horseback with a shotgun, and you see prisoners of color, right, usually black or Hispanic, picking cotton, and you know that these men are getting paid nothing, it doesn't seem at all hyperbolic to describe that condition as modern-day slavery. Hello, this is Cole Dorsey. Cole Dorsey is someone who got in contact with us through Azura and IWOC. He's a construction worker but he used to be imprisoned. He spent three years in jail for selling drugs. In prison, he told us he worked just to get out of his cell. He mowed the lawns. Yeah, so I was paid 42 cents an hour, and it wasn't but five hours of work a week. He got out in 2004, but he's still organizing. Like Comrade D, we asked what politicized him in prison. Because um, while I was incarcerated, uh, it was through discussions with a young member of the Nation of Islam. And I was, at that time, the only white uh, prisoner in the group. There was like 12 of us. But, um, you know, we just talked basically about ourselves, about how we got there, and, and then it kind of drifted towards the system. And and um, and I was always very open and honest about uh, my experience being a white, white man in the system and you know, recognizing the, uh, you know, differences in, in uh, you know, sentencing with people that I was in the same room with, uh, you know, uh, I discussed my case and the fact that, you know, like, with the charges that I had, uh, when I did meet with the lawyer, he looked over, um, reviewed everything and, um, and looked over all the paperwork and, and the first thing he said to me was, you're lucky you're white. So while we were putting this piece together, the phone rang. It was Benu Hannibal Rawson. He was born Melvin Ray. He's the co-founder of the Free Alabama Movement, the organization that called for this strike in the first place. By now, it had been 24 hours since we gave our phone number to Azura at IWOC. In that time, our information traveled from Texas to the Carolinas to California to Alabama, where Bennu says he is in solitary confinement. It was a little bit hard to hear him. This is my producer. Um, is there a smaller room you could be in by any chance? I'm so sorry. Okay, I just guess I'm hearing some like echoey noise, but that's okay. Okay. So, Banu, can you tell me what facility you're currently in? I'm currently at William E. Donaldson Correctional Facility in Bethlehem, Alabama. 
And how long have you been incarcerated? I've been incarcerated for 17 years. How long will you be incarcerated? Uh, I currently have life without parole. He was convicted of murder in 1999. How would you describe your role in the Free Alabama movement when it comes to actually organizing with prisoners in facilities in other parts of the country? Okay. Um, As an organizer within the Free Alabama movement, in 2012, uh, I ran across an article and it was detailing events that had happened in Georgia, December 9, 2010, demonstration. And Georgia prisoners had organized what was at that time the largest uh, work strike in U.S. prison history. Over 30,000 people were estimated to have participated. And so when we saw what they had did in Georgia, uh, I understood the scale. I was blown away by the scale of what they had done. Uh, but that's when I also found out that there were other products being made in prison other than the products and services that we were providing in the Alabama prison system. Prison labor can range from anything that keeps the institution running to working for corporations. Whole Foods, Starbucks, and notoriously Victoria's Secret have all used subcontractor companies that use prison labor. And uh, we started putting the information in Alabama prisons, educating guys about the scale of the industry, uh, what was actually going on, how we were contributing to our own incarceration, how we were paying the bills. We were, we, our labor was producing the revenue, generating the revenue uh, that was paying the bills, the light, the gas, the water, and the food. Everything that we were complaining about, we were contributing to it. So can you tell us about um, the conditions in this facility currently? Okay, the conditions of confinement. Alabama prisons are the most overcrowded, underfunded, and understaffed uh, prisons in the nation. Uh, I have videos, I film videos of myself, I film videos. You can smell the kitchen, the filth and the funk from the kitchen before you ever get into it. But this is where we have to eat it. You know, I'm in a cell right now, I have a, a mattress uh, that's less than three inches thick and I'm sleeping on a concrete slab that they call a bed. Um, my, all of my lights are out, I'm in a total dark cell right now, I can't see the effect of my eyesight. Uh, we had a, a breakout of Hepatitis C, the largest in the state. Uh, they have, um, this is hepatitis, what's the other one? Tuberculosis has broken out every several times. From the first time I came into Alabama's prison system, I was like, wow, these conditions are, are unbelievable. I can't believe we're living like this. And so I always used to tell my friend, man, if we had a camera or something where we can record some of this stuff and show people how we're actually living. They would not believe it, and I believe we could do that, use that to our advantage to bring about change. And so, um, 10 years, 11 years later, when I got to St. Clair Prison, uh, which is where I started putting the, um, the blueprint together for the movement, um, by that time, we were getting phones into the prison system. Cell phones were coming in, they were easily accessible. Uh, they were not necessarily affordable, but if you could get the money, you could get one. And so when I purchased one, I was like, I'm fixing to turn this into my video camera. And so I turned it on and I went to the prison, I went through the kitchen, I went through the living area, and I filmed, 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 I took over a thousand pictures, and I created my own YouTube channel. And then I created my own Facebook page, and then I created my own Twitter. And I said, I'm gonna make sure that when we organize our strikes, it's not gonna be like Georgia, where it took two years for it to get across one state line. We're gonna provide this material and instant access because 
we've learned that when we organize something, even if it's nonviolent, the, the prison staff, the commissioner's office, and their media office will say, well, these guys are right. And they'll use that to justify coming in and use force against it. Well, I wanted to be a step ahead of them so that they couldn't try to define what we were doing as violent or rioting, but that we were actually uh, nonviolent and peaceful demonstrations, and we were going to document and back up what we were complaining about with the videos and whatnot. And so that's how we were able to put all of those pieces together, and that's how we were able to get free out of the movement out on the scale that it's on today. That was reporting from Doreen St. Felix on the prison strike currently underway by incarcerated people across the U.S. Doreen spoke with Comrade D., a prisoner in the Carolinas, Azura Crispino, media co-chair of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, Cole Dorsey, activist and former prisoner, and Benu Hannibal-Rawson, a prisoner in Alabama. The strike is ongoing, and you can read more about it at mtv.com news. Extra thanks to Kasia Mihailovich for producing this piece. Last week, the Obama administration suspended the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota. If finished, the $3.8 billion pipeline would carry oil from western North Dakota under parts of the Missouri River into Illinois. The construction has already allegedly destroyed sacred Native American sites and could contaminate local water sources. This has led to protests from tribes and environmental groups across the country. The Standing Rock Sioux has been at the forefront of protests near Cannonball, North Dakota, which have grown to include support from over 200 Native American tribes. MTV writer Marcus Ellsworth talked to Candy Mossett of the Indigenous Environmental Network about their protest efforts. I'm Marcus Ellsworth with MTV News, and today I'm speaking with Candy Mossett of the Indigenous Environmental Network. She's been in North Dakota with the water protectors of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe as they work to stop construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. So how are you doing today, Candy? I'm doing very well, actually. It's getting a little chilly out here now in the camp, but other than that, everyone's spirits are pretty high and we are all um, in it for the long haul. So that's really good to know. Wonderful. And the, the reason spirits are high is because the construction for for the time being has been stopped, correct? That is correct. Um, <laughs> it was a very emotional day last Friday when we had first heard that the um, Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's temporary injunction was denied uh, by the mm-hmm. judge. And then there was the news that the Department of the Interior, the Department of Justice and the Department of the Army had actually released a statement saying that they would not allow the easement underneath the Missouri River, um, nor any building within a 20 mile radius east or west of the river. So that was something that people were really happy about, but we're not fooled by that sort of delay Mm -hmm. in the construction. We understand that construction is happening right now as we speak and is continuing outside that 20 mile radius. And it's very important for people to know and understand that we're not here just to stop one little section of the pipeline. We're here to stop it in its entirety. And we will be here until that happens. And I've heard reports that uh, there are concerns that some sacred sites and perhaps even a burial uh, location has been damaged already by the construction. Is there any truth to that? Yes. um, Unfortunately, there is. um, In the last few weeks, the landowner that owned the land um, where Dakota Access had um, an easement 
had actually reached out to the Tribal Historic Preservation Office and to the tribe to say, look, Dakota Access knows that there's cultural sites out here and significant uh, sacred sites out here, but they don't appear to be doing anything. And you guys should get mm. out here. And so the the Tippos went out there, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officers, and found a culturally significant site, something that hadn't been seen in the upper Midwest in quite a while. And um, personally, I'm, I'm very triggered by what had happened because I am Mandan, mm. Hidatsa, and Arikara from the Fort Berthold Reservation northwest of here. And those were Arikara sites that were identified, oh. very beautiful sites that had been GPS mapped that information had been sent to the courts on Friday and um, the tribe was going to file for a cease and desist against Dakota Access because of those sites. And on Saturday, Mm -hmm. the very next day, Dakota Access had actually leapfrogged over a 15-mile track of land where they were working because they were only making about 11 miles per week. So we knew they weren't going to be near to those sites for quite a while. But instead, Mm -hmm. they just jumped over uh, 15 miles, went directly to the sites and bulldozed them on Saturday morning. And people saw this happening right off of 1806, just to the west of Highway 1806. And with the call went out, hey, they're digging, they're digging, we've got to get up here. And so people came and saw the digging happening and it, and it was women that were like, what are we doing? We have to stop them. And they started to break down the fence and they started to go out there and and jump in front of the bulldozers and draw a front line. And when that happened, um, the Dakota Access people and energy transfer partner people had actually hired a private security company. I think in anticipation that there was going to be a confrontation, they knew that by them going out there and destroying a cultural site that had been identified, we were going to we were going to come. They had a private Mm -hmm. security company with dogs. They had a helicopter. Six people were bitten by dogs, including one pregnant woman who was bitten on the shoulder. Another woman was bitten on the breast. Another boy was bitten on the stomach and had to be taken to the hospital. Six other people had like hand to hand conflict with the security officers when they were punching the crowd, they, they were, they were attacking the crowd. Additionally, women that were holding the front line, which basically meant they just locked arms and were saying water is life. Water is life. standing in front of the equipment. They were all sprayed in the face. There were over 30 people that got maced in the face by the security company. And the very next day, the police released a statement talking about what had happened to the security and how we were violent, how we attacked them. And there was no mention or no discussion about the provocation and the aggressiveness by Dakota Access for doing mm-hmm. what they did and knowingly and intentionally going out and destroying a sacred site. And then we found that there were nine burials out there and there were at least two that were destroyed. My ancestors' bones were destroyed in that confrontation. And Dakota Access knowingly did that to us. And still they have the audacity to call us the ones that are monsters or call us the ones that are violent. And it just goes to show that this corporation and this company will stop at nothing to get the money that they're after to build this pipeline. And to be clear, the the people out there protesting, there hasn't been any violence on the part of protesters. People have been gathering very peacefully and, and organized. Yeah, we've been gathered in prayer and ceremony. Back in March, there was a ceremony that was done And the ceremony had basically said, which I was not there, but what had came out of that was if we continue 
to stand together in prayer and in a nonviolent way, we will win against this pipeline. And it's the only way we would win. And so we have been out here in prayer and in ceremony and in nonviolent direct action. Prayer and ceremony doesn't mean that we just sit on the sidelines and watch this pipeline go through. It also mm-hmm. means that we physically put our bodies on the line if that's what's necessary to go in front of the equipment and literally stop the equipment from tearing apart and desecrating sacred sites and destroying water sources. That is what we've been doing. There haven't been any weapons. There haven't been, hasn't been any kind of extreme violence of any nature that's been done to any uh, individual, to any equipment. And it's, it's crazy that the national narrative is here talking about violence in North Dakota, when in other states there has been damage that has been done to equipment. And we're we're really restraining ourselves and holding back because of the prayer and ceremony that we were told by a greater power. And so I think mm. it's amazing that what we're doing here is standing together in solidarity, yet we're being touted, uh, trying to be touted by the national media in a different light as violent. And that's just not true. And this, this whole movement, the, the attention that's been brought to, uh, to the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, it, it really and truly, it's, it's a historic moment. From what I understand, this is one of the largest gatherings of tribes and support for a single cause in, in memory. Yeah, um, definitely. We, we, the, the really, the thing that gives me goosebumps every morning when I come out of my tent and I go up on the hill and I look out over the camp and I see the, the hundreds of camp people camping and the teepees and, and everything and the river it's really beautiful and it's really powerful because this is a very culturally significant site in and of itself. A long mm. time ago, over 200 years ago, there was medicine that was put in the ground on this very site because enemies used to gather here to trade. It's a very significant trading route where we are for the Mandan people, particularly, and then Maya Rikara tribes as well. And so you can find things like shells from the ocean. In, in this area right now where we're camping. And this is the geographic center of North America. We're nowhere near an ocean, but that is the trade route, you know, from here to the ocean and to all these areas. And enemies used to camp here because we could see each other. We could watch mm-hmm. each other while we did our trading. Some of our goods, Mandan, Herads, Arikara people were farming tribes. We had corn, squash, beans. And then some of the, the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, and other tribes had more of the the, the buffalo meat and the hides and things like that. And of course, the other tribes that came with shells, all these things were traded here. So now we're back together in this exact same spot, you know, 200, 300 years later, but we're standing together in unity and solidarity on the very site where we used to stand to trade before. And it just gives me the chills every time I think of the beauty of it and the, the historical significance of that medicine that was in the ground that you can still feel today bringing us together and keeping us together to come together to stop this but we don't want to just stop this pipeline and be happy and go home we want to make sure that we are moving away from the fossil fuel industry so that all people no matter where they are stop being targeted by coal gas uranium natural you know whatever it is that Mm -hmm. that industry goes away and we reinvest 
for everyone involved into renewables so that we can have a just transition away from these dirty jobs and that people who rely on the industry for these jobs have alternative choices other than having to do this to put food on the table because honestly we care about the workers some of my own relatives are working in the industry right now northwest of here in the Bakken which is where this oil is coming from. And the Bakken is the heart of, of the source of contention that not a lot of people are talking about either. A lot of people are just focusing on one pipeline, but it's really important to see the big picture. And so, you know, you've obviously seen firsthand the consequences of this kind of development. Um, and, and right now, to, to bring it back to the, the, the efforts to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, Part of what the Department of Justice and the Army Corps of Engineers has offered is for tribal leaders to meet with the U.S. government to talk about the current, the current regulations, both those that aren't being, even being followed and the ones that are being followed, and how to, um, how to address this kind of development in the future. Do you feel like, like the U.S. government is actually going to hear the voices of, of tribal leaders and, and the people who are most impacted by this kind of of, of development do you think this this is going to lead to anything they're talking about meeting this fall so yeah i mean i can only hope and pray but i mean historically we have been shown that that doesn't happen native american mm -hmm. people in this country have been stepped on stomped on pushed down time and time and time again the fact that these treaty rights aren't even being followed still shows that so i personally don't put my faith into the government here into a capitalistic system because what we really need is a, a systems change away from capitalism and um and colonization that is the root cause of the problem and i really don't feel like our government right now in our country is ready to um, admit that and ready to move in that direction. And that's where they need to be if they are truly going to work with us as Native Americans on the ground and see the error of their ways that have been happening since they first came over here and we discovered them in our lands. Mm -hmm. And so I have hope and I will pray mm. and, and, and that's all I can do, but I'm not going to put all of my eggs in that basket. That's why we're here. You know, mm -hmm. if we didn't take a stand this way, if we didn't put the call out and do these nonviolent direct actions, this would have never happened. There would have never been a statement that was put out by these agencies. They would have never done that unless we took the power back into our own hands and made it happen for ourselves. Very true. So, and that being said, of course, you know, and I don't blame you for not having much of any faith in the government <laughs> upholding their end of a deal. Um, but as far as uh, the water protectors out there and their supporters across the country and around the world, uh, what are the next steps? What are there? Is there any way that people can continue to support and um, and help to elevate the voices of the people out there? Yes, definitely. I think this needs to stay in the national narrative. People need to know that we're not going to go anywhere and people can still come to Cannonball. The call out is still there. The pipeline work is continuing. We have seen them continuing the work outside the 20 mile radius. They are now sealing pipe. They are now trenching pipe. If they were actually going to stop this project, that work would continue, but it is, and we know it is, and we're going to go to where it is. There's no question that we aren't just going to be pacified by this temporary delay. And so make no mistake, we still need 
support. We still need bodies mm -hmm. on the ground and we still need to talk about the winter camp and to have the supplies and materials that we're going to need out here to stay warm. That's been the toughest part now for people, especially for people like myself. I'm here with my three-year-old daughter and, you know, it's been really getting cold at night. And so we're, we're looking at plans for permanent um, winter camp because we're not going anywhere. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Candy. Thank you again so much. Come out and see us. We'll be here. We'll set up a teepee for you. We'll set up a camp for you. We're very, we feed, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner out here. And it's really amazing what happens in the camp at night that most people don't see. But there's song, there's dance, there's hand games, there's performances by Native artists. And it's really a beautiful thing to hear the drum beats at night. So it's something that you can't really understand unless you're here with us. That was MTV writer Marcus Ellsworth in conversation with Candy Mossett of the Indigenous Environmental Network. That's it for us this week on The Stakes. I'm Julianne Ross, filling in for Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.